Hello, everyone. My name is Matt, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be chatting with Kyle Bailey about the limits of stakeholder capitalism, corporate citizenship, and corporate social responsibility. Kyle is the author of a newly released article in the Journal of Australian Political Economy, which is freely available online. It's called Stakeholder Capitalism Against Democracy, Relegitimizing Global Neoliberalism. And Kyle, you're coming to us from Helsinki, Finland, correct? Correct. It's great to be here with you, Matt. And if I'm correct, it's four o'clock there and it's already dark? Uh, yeah, actually in Helsinki, we're, we're just coming up to the darkest day of the year. So it's in, in like two days from now, at least from when we're doing this recording. Uh, and we, we have between two and three hours of sunlight. So obviously it's very sunny here in Helsinki. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay, Kyle. Um, well, let's just jump into it. First thing, I'd like to ask you, what, what do you mean by stakeholder capitalism? corporate citizenship, corporate social responsibility. Can you define those terms for us? Okay, well, well let's start off uh, broadly uh, with the, the question of corporate citizenship, which I think is, is quite broad and will help us uh, as a segue into maybe talking about stakeholder capitalism. So, I mean, in my mind, at least, the debate about corporate citizenship is really about the nature of the corporation in, in capitalism. So uh, speaking firstly about capitalism, if we look at least at feudalism, the right of feudal lords to extract surplus labor from peasants was legitimated uh, through reference to wider public duties and obligations of the lord to the serf. So the, the relations of uh, vassal and fief the church hierarchy, etc. But, uh, you know, under capitalism, uh, that's really not the case. So there's like a clear separation of economic and political spheres and the, the requirement to accumulate capital appears as like an end in itself uh, rather than the means to some other end. So... If we think about it that way, given this kind of subordination of public purpose to capital accumulation in capitalism, it's probably not so surprising to find that capitalism is structurally uh, prone to crises of legitimacy, basically. So, I mean, in this context, corporate citizenship functions as a kind of capitalist legitimation strategy. So. Uh, what does it do? It blurs the boundary between the public and private spheres. So it endows corporations uh, and firms, which are nominally private and economic entities. Uh, it endows them with kind of a sense of public purpose and civic identity. But it, it, it kind of does this without undermining this separation of economics and politics in, in capitalism. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact, it often reinforces it. So, I mean, that's kind of from the perspective of capitalism. But then I, I, I think to get at uh, what you're asking, we 
obviously you have to tackle it from the other end. So, so we have to talk about the corporation uh, more specifically. So, I mean, if we look from the 1870s when competitive capitalism was kind of being replaced by what's sometimes called monopoly capitalism, you had all these family firms that were displaced, uh, small firms that were displaced gradually by giant corporations. So that's uh, monopoly capitalism. And the, the, the kind of old capitalist buccaneering owner entrepreneurs, the so-called robber barons of 19th century liberal capitalism, they gradually gave way uh, to kind of a, a different class structure. So on the one hand, you have shareholders who own the capital. And then on the other hand, you have professional managers who control it, as opposed to previously when the, the capitalist entrepreneur kind of monopolized both of those functions. So from this angle, uh, the question of corporate citizenship can, can kind of be seen to be about how much autonomy managers have from shareholders and whether they can have and pursue their, their kind of own distinct interests that go beyond just maximizing profits for shareholders, whether they can pursue other things that go beyond just profits and growth. So uh, there, there, are, there are two major views on that question. So. On the one hand, you have advocates of corporate citizenship who tend to have a rather optimistic view of managers. So they, they see managers as kind of the, the harbingers of a more humane and responsible kind of capitalism with a human face, much more aligned with the public good and the general will. And this position was quite common uh, in the post-war period after 1945. Then, on the other hand, you, you have uh, opponents of corporate citizenship, uh, especially from the 1970s up until recently. You have neoliberals, many people on the right who've tended to regard managers, I'd say, as agents of shareholders and potentially as rogue agents who need to be constrained uh, and disciplined by financial markets. So I would say Milton Friedman really came to mind here. Uh, so in an article that Friedman wrote, uh, he's a, he's a well-known neoliberal theorist. Uh, he wrote an article in the New York Times in 1970, and his argument basically was that the uh, social responsibility of, bu of business uh, is to maximize its profits and, and, and nothing else. Um, because if it doesn't do that, it's stealing shareholders' money, right? Yeah, exactly. So if it engages in uh, philanthropy, acts of corporate responsibility, and so on, or if it even tries to pursue objectives other than purely economic ones, then it's doing the shareholders a disservice. It's not really acting as their agent, and, it's, uh, and the, manager, the management team has kind of gone rogue in that sense. Yes. So, I mean, in my view, though, like both of the two perspectives I've just shared with you, uh, they, they both kind of tend to overstate uh, the autonomy of managers from shareholders and to the extent that these two groups are in conflict. 
I mean, well, what I mean by that is, like, if you think about it this way, the whole portrayal of corporations as moral agents and citizens is is kind of contradictory. Because if you think about it, even when managers try and move beyond profit maximization, they're normally doing this because they're being driven by capitalist imperatives to do so. So, I mean, to just give you an example, uh, if we look at a corporation's reputation, I mean, it's, it's, it's often pitched like it's a purely moral issue. But, uh, I, I mean, if you look at it, it's not really a moral issue. Like, the, the company's reputation is a valuable asset, uh, economic asset in its own right, and it can determine competitive advantage in the market. And conversely, lots of economic issues like um, social and ecological problems and crises, political uncertainty, like we've seen a lot of when uh, uh, with Trump as U.S. president, uh, this can be a significant threat to the profitability of firms and to the capitalist system as a whole. So in your article, your article makes it clear that there's been a real push in the last decade or so to enhance this kind of corporate citizenship stuff. Why is it in the last few years we've seen such a reemergence of this kind of uh, discourse? Well, um, so I think I think there's been really been a major push in this direction, like you said, in, in the last decade, and and it, it's been getting stronger more recently. So I mean, I I I'd maybe answer your question like this. So I mean, I mean, when Joe Biden, who is is now going to be president, when he was campaigning, uh, he 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 said at one point that it was time to put an end to the era of what he called shareholder capitalism. And I mean, when he said that, he, he really was uh, reflecting a, a really widespread sense that neoliberal globalization is now in uh, crisis. And I mean, if we look back at the last decade, uh, you, you, can, you can really see this. So, I mean, we, we had the 2008 financial crisis and great recession, and we've had a decade of austerity after that. We have politicians. Uh, on the left, but mainly on the right, who are openly critical of capitalist globalization, at least in its uh, current form. Uh, there's been a growing recognition that we're facing a severe climate emergency. And, you know, climate change as an issue has become much more central than it was before 2008 as a policy priority. And I mean, in, in 2019, there were a lot of mobilizations, as, especially. And, and, and I mean, now, uh, after this growing recognition of the climate emergency, we, we also have one of the first major crises born of uh, the contradictions of capital, the ecological contradictions of capitalist globalization and capitalist agribusiness. So uh, that's obviously the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So, I mean... In this context, you know, of crisis, the once dominant neoliberal ideology of free markets has, has really become as much, if not more, of a liability than an asset uh, to the capitalist class. So that claim by Milton Friedman that's been so influential that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits kind of no longer functions 
as common sense in the way that it did before 2008. So this is kind of the contemporary backdrop for what's being called stakeholder capitalism. So kind of the latest wave of this uh, corporate citizenship stuff. So, I mean, the big idea with stakeholder capitalism is is very simple. Uh, It's that instead of maximizing value for shareholders, uh, corporations should maximize value for key stakeholder groups, such as customers, their employees, suppliers, communities, and and the environment, Uh, groups like that. Although, obviously, the environment isn't a group, but there you go. That's what they, they often say. Uh, And we've seen a whole range of institutions that we normally associate with neoliberalism, like the World Economic Forum, major corporations, the Bank of England, major business schools, the Financial Times, you name it. Uh, They've all been calling for a break with shareholder primacy. So let's uh, give an example. In in the US, uh, a leading proponent of stakeholder capitalism uh, is Larry Fink. Uh, the CEO of BlackRock. Now, BlackRock is is the world's largest asset management fund. Uh, so while we're kind of used to seeing bankers from Goldman Sachs occupy top White House positions, uh, if we look at Biden's top team, the the most senior representatives on Wall Street actually come from BlackRock now. So uh, the firm's head of sustainable investing, Brian Deese, uh, who I mentioned in my essay, Uh, He's going to run the National Economic Council. So that's one. And then there's this guy called Wally Adamo, uh, who was uh, Fink's chief of staff at BlackRock, and he was the head of the Obama Foundation. And he's going to be the number two at at the U.S. Treasury under Janet Yellen. So, I mean, and that's, that's not all of it. I mean, like earlier this year, the European Commission chose BlackRock to be a paid advisor on its uh, its uh, policies and regulation, how to construct policies and regulations to mitigate climate change through the European Union's banking rules. So I mean, I mean that that's an example of a firm supporting stakeholder capitalism and just how central it, it is kind of becoming. And what my article tries to do is it just tries to put to rest any lingering illusions that stakeholder capitalism might mean the end of neoliberalism. So, I mean, uh, it's really on the contrary. I mean, it's really mostly about sustaining neoliberalism, even extending it just in the context of basically spiraling economic, social, and ecological emergencies that we've gradually been build up since 2008. So it doesn't really look like neoliberalism uh, as we're used to seeing it on the left. But but then again, you know, uh, the the way we normally think about neoliberalism as just being about free markets and small states, liberalizing markets and minimizing state intervention. I mean, it's never really looked like that, even though that's the way it's been painted by ideologues of neoliberalism like Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, uh, and so on. So, I mean, in in my argument, uh, stakeholder capitalism is really about preserving the hardcore of neoliberalism in in a context where this ideology of shareholder value that was so prevalent before 2008 has been delegitimized. So it's it's a conscious strategy for re-legitimizing the system 
And, and I think it's one that looks set to only gain in traction as capitalism's crisis deepens. Right. BlackRock has played uh, its own part here in Canada, too. I, I think um, they were involved in discussions around the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So not just in the UK and Europe and the United States, BlackRock has its own role here as well. Um, yeah, you, you have people like Dominic Barton, right, who, who was McKinsey's global director, working very closely with BlackRock through, uh, he, uh, Barton was Trudeau's uh, economic advisor, right? Correct. And now he is the ambassador to China. Aha. Uh-huh. So he's moved on to Indeed. even bigger and better things. <laughs> yes. So you make it clear in, in your article that corporate efforts to paint themselves in a positive light to legitimize themselves, these aren't altogether new. So you discuss soulful corporation of the 1950s, the ideology of managerialism of the 1960s, and so on. Do you think there's anything unique about the most recent incarnation of neoliberal corporate citizenship that we need to pay particular attention to? Uh, yeah, so, so I, think, I think there's one or two relevant differences. So, I mean, whereas uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, big business was already suffering from what might be called a, a legitimacy deficit, uh, since uh, the 2008 financial crash, that's really morphed into a full-blown legitimation crisis. So today, this idea of shareholder primacy that was so popular and, and like legitimate in many ways before the crash, it, it, it's now really seen as a negative term and it, it's popularly viewed really as a leading cause of the various crises that we're facing. So, I mean, all of this kind of pressure has really forced the hand of big business, uh, which really has felt the pressure. So kind of in that context, we've seen a critique of the limits of corporate responsibility, at least as it's been, was practiced up to then, uh, emerge within the ruling class itself. So, I mean, the kind of idea of that is that uh, CSR didn't really work because it was pursued too haphazardly. It was too marginal vis-a-vis uh, the, the business models of firms. So the idea is that it's going to work as long as we put it more centrally at the level of the business model. So basically, CSR and sustainable development, sustainability, they kind of have to become the business model. So that's kind of the idea you see coming out of the World Economic Forum, especially at Davos, the Financial Times, and a lot of other places. And, and that's kind of part of the, the idea of what stakeholder capitalism is. So, I mean, consequently, the kind of cutting edge of neoliberal restructuring that we see at the firm level today is really focused on integrating social and environmental factors into the core business strategies of leading firms. And if you kind of look uh, closely at what's happening here, you can kind of see that maybe the firm that most resembles the ideal of what they want to achieve uh, is is an Anglo-Dutch consumer goods firm called Unilever, which has played a very important role ideologically, but also in, in policy and organizational terms. So, I mean, just, just to say a little bit about that, um, in 2009, this guy called Paul Polman uh, became 
the CEO of Unilever. Uh, he, he's Dutch, but he, he had spent a lot of time in the United States. And he, he'd spent most of his career actually working at Procter & Gamble, which is uh, Unilever's big American rival. And Pullman became a big advocate of stakeholder capitalism, really one of the, the first big advocates, if not the first in this kind of post-financial crash period that I'm, I'm trying to like hone in on in the article. So, I mean, one of the first things Pullman did uh, when he became CEO, uh, he, he criticized financial markets for being short-termist. So, and Unilever stopped publishing quarterly reporting and guidance uh, for its shareholders. And Pullman started claiming that instead of championing uh, shareholder value, Unilever would now champion uh, the, the needs of its stakeholders, by which he went, meant uh, suppliers, governments, uh, increasingly sustainability conscious consumers, uh, but also smallholder farmers. And, and climate change activists, a- activists. So people who who you would normally think of as having a, a more antagonistic relationship with a firm like Unilever. So Palman's flagship project, while he was CEO, was this thing called the Unilever Sustainability Plan, a uh, Sustainable Living Plan. And today, that's really one of the the flagship projects uh, for kind of breaking with standard CSR as, as, as the ruling class is now kind of trying to go beyond. So what the Sustainable Living Plan does is it places three ostensibly non-financial objectives at the heart of Unilever's accumulation strategy. So to do with health and hygiene, reducing environmental damage, and supporting the welfare of people in its supply chain. And the sustainable living plan has been the driving force behind the period of internal restructuring within the firm itself. And I mean, this this went on to such an extent that, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I quote this, uh, I, I cite this uh, line by the environmental activist, uh, George Monbiot, and, and, and he says, if you blotted out its name while reading its web pages, uh, you could basically mistake Unilever for an agency of the United Nations. And I mean, it's no joke. Its website really does look like uh, a UN website. Uh, and I mean, Pullman himself, he even said, without any irony, he, he, he even said at one point that Unilever is the world's biggest NGO. Uh, but the only difference, is that it's making money, so it's more sustainable than an NGO. So what I think the case of Unilever illustrates, at least on the, on the corporate side, uh, attempts by the ruling class to respond to this legitimation crisis that capitalism is suffering right now in a, in a somewhat more systematic way. So, I mean... On the one hand, that means getting big institutional investors and asset managers like BlackRock on board with long-term finance, uh, ESG, triple bottom line accounting and disclosure and things like this. It also means more numerous and large-scale partnerships 
between corporations, governments, and, and also mainstream NGOs around key social and ecological problems and crises which threaten uh, the corporate bottom line and continued economic growth. So, I mean, in Unilever's case, these kind of crises, they're, they're things like climate change, uh, water use, plastic packaging waste, food security, uh, deforestation, and, and, and many others. So the firm's role in generating these crises is kind of glossed over altogether within this kind of discourse. It's not, it doesn't even come up as a factor, obviously. And on the other hand, the, you, uh, the firm's intimate, quote-unquote, understanding of the issues involved, i.e. it's causing many of these problems in the first place, is actually repackaged as the first step towards solving them. So it's really quite amazing. Uh, and I, I mean, I know what you're thinking at this point. I mean, it's all just a greenwash and like a, a whitewash. And, and there's definitely a lot of that going on, I don't deny it. But still, I think at base, stakeholder capitalism isn't reducible to just like a kind of marketing campaign and a rebranding. At base, it's, it's a hegemonic strategy and, and in some ways a very sincere one for trying at least to address social and ecological emergencies within the logic of capital and through intensified commodification. I mean, it might be hard for us to understand, but many of these people feel that they're quite sincere about what they're doing. And I mean, of course, that's not to say for even one moment that it's going to work, uh, even in the case of Unilever. Like if you look at the company's own statistics, you, you can really see quite quickly that it's claimed to have, quote unquote, decoupled its economic growth from, say, environmental degradation uh, that that claim really doesn't hold water. Right. I was going to ask you, I mean, it seems like everything you're saying is we can't reduce this to just a marketing strategy. This is about real institutional changes within the corporation itself. But I was very curious to hear about some of the changes experienced on the ground among, say, Unilever's suppliers. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Uh, from that kind of end, of course, uh, stakeholder capitalism is very top-down. And a company like Unilever, its relationship to its suppliers is somewhat similar, at least by analogy, to a firm like Amazon. So whereas Amazon has a lot of power over, over its uh, distributors and sellers on, on the Amazon marketplaces. It has a lot of power to determine and push down prices. This is sometimes called monopsony power. It's like the power of one buyer versus many uh, sellers. So, I mean, Unilever's relationship to smallholder farmers in its supply chain is, is somewhat similar to that. It has a lot of power to determine price. It has a lot of power to keep smallholder producers in the dark about their relationship to the firm itself and to the other producers in its supply chain. So it functions very much as you would think a capitalist firm would at this level to kind of keep its, uh, keep the, the sellers from whom it buys disorganized and so on. And I mean, in terms of, in terms of the corporate citizenship stuff, I would say that there's a lot of uh, stuff to do with green capitalism. So you see 
for example, a huge push towards regenerative agriculture, this idea that you can balance uh, profitability and productivity in agricultural supply chains with environmental sustainability. And of course, Unilever pitches all this as uh, a very benevolent thing that it's uh, helping smallholders to become more entrepreneurial, to produce more, and therefore to raise their incomes, and to do so in a way that makes farming more harmonious with nature. And uh, I, I mean, now we know, we all, we all know from various studies uh, from peasants themselves and uh, through agroecology that this is often not true and smallholder farmers are often the most sustainable kinds of farmers. They, they look after seeds, they do many things uh, that, that is actually much more sustainable than this kind of uh, GM food, GM seed kind of farming, high intensity agriculture that firms like Unilever uh, push. But I, I, I mean, the short answer to your question is that it's, it's a whole load of uh, green capitalism and uh, what's sometimes called social capitalism. Very, very capitalist, and definitely not the, not the kind of thing that you would, uh, you would consider as uh, being very far apart from Unilever's core interest in, in profits and growth. Okay, so perhaps the Unilever suppliers haven't seen much of a difference in terms of their relationship with the company. But I'm wondering, there's the other aspect of this stuff, and that's your argument that this is a re-legitimation strategy. So I'm wondering how successful do you think it, it has been in those terms? And who do you see as the main sort of target audience of this stuff? Is it the, the middle classes in the, in the global north? Is it impacted communities in the global south? Um, one of the terms that you use to describe multinational corporations' behavior is they're structurally irresponsible. So do people buy what they're being sold here? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, uh, what, what I would say is that stakeholder capitalism really is a decidedly top-down strategy for restoring capitalist hegemony in, in a period where we've seen neoliberal business as usual come under a lot of uh, strain. So, I mean, uh, you have a lot of political polarization. The neoliberal center is kind of waning in some ways. So the, the ruling class faces the dilemma of how to unify a capitalist power block and disorganize resistance on the terrain of the state. How can it put together the kind of winning coalitions that it needs to rule? So, I mean, where, where does that start? At least from their perspective, it doesn't start at the bottom with peasants or workers. It starts from the top. And this involves various kinds of grand bargains and coalitions, uh, including the big energy and fossil fuel firms. And it also entails compromises between corporate executives, political leaders in the state, and the leaders of mainstream NGOs. Uh, and on the NGOs point as well, and beyond that, I mean, stakeholder capitalism is, like, like you said, it's very appealing to those uh, occupying positions within the professional managerial cadre. So not just private corporations and public bureaucracies, but also those with positions in international organizations, liberal foundations, and NGOs 
and and I mean just to reiterate your instinct, which it, which is spot on, from from the perspective of the capitalist class, the the interest of workers and power mostly insofar as they turn up for work each day and turn out to vote uh, on election day for the right people, i.e. the the representatives of capital, and and I mean speaking to your point about uh, how like deeply is this going to kind of seep into popular consciousness, even during the high tide of capitalist uh, and neoliberal hegemony in the 1990s and early 2000s, neoliberal ideology never elicited active popular consent from most workers. And it's always been contested to some degree. And it's been actively resisted uh, in many ways. Uh, But I mean, during hard times for the ruling class, its core added value kind of may be to neutralize and co-opt at least potentially more radical alternatives and to marginalize and at least confuse to some extent resistance from below. And I mean, if if you look in some of the key capitalist states, uh, we've already seen this happen to some extent. I I mean, if you look at what's happened with uh, Sanders in, in the US and Corbyn in the UK as well, you can kind of see it there as as well. So, Kyle, do you think that capital as a whole is united behind this stakeholder capitalism discourse? I mean, what kind of relationship do you think those sectors of capital linked to link to it have with far right forces, say, in the Trump administration in the U.S. or Boris Johnson's government in the United Kingdom? Uh, th- this is a, a really good question. So, so I, I think I'd approach that by saying, uh, well, at least I'd, I'd start by reiterating that capital, uh, it's not a unitary block or a monolithic block. Uh, it's internally divided. So into different firms, sectors and fractions. And on the other hand, it's, it's fractionated politically. So you have different projects in the capitalist class ranging from more the kind of free market liberty Arianism, you have more neo-Keynesian kind of ideas floating around, and then you you have the kind of more thoroughgoing attempts at addressing social and ecological issues that that we've been focusing on. But you know, stakeholder capitalism it, it it speaks more to big capital, so it doesn't necessarily speak to small business, which tends to be struggling a lot of the time. I, I mean, it's it's kind of small businesses periodically liquidated uh, every half decade or so just through the normal functioning of capitalism. These businesses go under a lot. They, they can't really sustain. They don't have the resources either to sustain these kind of strategies or perspectives. But more, more broadly, I, I, I guess, since stakeholder capitalism deepens and extends rather than fundamentally changes uh, capitalism's exploitative nature, it's really not going to counteract the growth of far-right movements. Uh, that said, I, I mean, if you, if, if you look at uh, Trump and other fight far-right leaders, uh, obviously they may aspire to govern beyond the usual limits of capitalist democracy. But the durability of neoliberalism, especially in the absence of a socialist challenge from the left, makes it very likely that capitalist classes and capitalist states uh, won't really go down uh, the route of fascism and dictatorship or anything like them. It's, it's, it's really historically where there's been a challenge from the left, where 
where the ruling class has kind of, uh, and where there have been really massive structural economic crises, like in Italy and Germany during the interwar period, where the ruling class has really turned to the far right to sustain its rule. So, I mean, if you look at in the U.S., the U.S. Business Roundtable, uh, when when Biden won the election, it issued a statement pretty quickly congratulating him on his uh, victory. Uh, even some capitalists that uh, we closely associate with free market libertarianism congratulated Biden. So I'm thinking here mainly of Charles Koch. So, I mean, the, for, for the big picture, it doesn't really look like uh, capitalist globalization is going to be rolled back by by a right-wing uh, project of protectionism or military or inter-imperialist rivalry anytime soon. Uh, the real question, given the balance of forces, is more about what form, uh, the form in which globalization is going to survive, especially in the wake of uh, the coronavirus. But to speak also to the sense of, uh, of your question and then to acknowledge the, the, the sense of it as well, because I, I, I don't want to be uh, come off as dismissive about it at all. Uh, ruling class efforts to muddle through the, the legitimation crisis, they can still definitely pave the way for only the far right. I mean, we, we, we saw this with the World Economic Forum. Uh, Trump and Bolsonaro and people like that were all invited to its annual meetings in Davos, and to some extent, the, the forum was trying to normalize them. Um, and and, you know, this also speaks to the deep relationship, the deep roots of the relationship between neoliberalism and authoritarian, especially in the peripheral and semi-peripheral zones of, of the capitalist world economy. I mean, it, it, it's well known that Friedrich von Hayek, uh, the neoliberal intellectual, favoured a liberal dictatorship over an illiberal democracy. And Milton Friedman, and the Chicago boys, the, the group of economists around the University of Chicago, they actively supported and helped the Pinochet coup regime in Chile after 1973. So the similarities with Bolsonaro in Brazil on this front uh, can really be quite striking. However, to sum up, I, I, I guess I would still say uh, that overall, this tendency still falls short of what's sometimes uh, suggested on the left, namely that the only way out of this crisis uh, for the ruling class is, is uh, an alliance of neoliberals and neo-fascists. But only time will tell. Well, perhaps that's a good segue for my last question, which is quite simply, what can we do about this beyond exposing its intellectual bankruptcy, as you've done so well in your paper? That, that's obviously a hard question, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Uh, I mean, to fight uh, neoliberalism and also the far right, uh, the left really needs to take aim at, at capitalism itself, uh, the alienating and exploitative system that sustains the power of neoliberalism and the ruling class and disillusionment with which fuels the rise of the far right. So, I mean, in, in, in this kind of context, while stakeholder capitalism certainly won't counteract the growth of the far right, it can definitely split the left. And it can do this by offering up the possibility of a, some kind of more humane capitalism that exists more harm, harmoniously with society and nature. So, I mean, for progressives, quote unquote, 
quote, who are more at home with critiquing the kind of free market minimal state strategies that we associate with the more libertarian and conservative strain of neoliberalism. Uh, this vision of a reformed capitalism is likely to hold some significant ideological appeal. So, I mean, to counteract this tendency towards co-optation, uh, the left really has to work to exploit the, the real and noticeable contradictions within capital's new strategy uh, to pinpoint real solutions to the escalating social and ecological emergencies that cannot be solved with social capitalism or green capitalism, and thus just generally to pose the stark choice that's facing humanity now between capitalism and socialism. So, so I mean, at, at root, capitalist corporations do exist to maximize profit. And in, in his new book, which I've, I've only just started reading today and yesterday, uh, Joel Bakken really reminds us that co corporations can really only do as much good as is going to help them do well. But the most pressing crises that humanity faces today, they're, they're rooted precisely in the conflict between making money and pursuing social and environmental goals. So really resolving these crises most fundamentally requires a break with capitalism. Uh, so to, to fight back, the left really has to challenge increased corporate and state activity driven by the needs of capital rather than by an insurgent left or militant trade union movement. Even if those uh, uh, activities and interventions by the state increasingly, increasingly assume a kind of progressive or green ideological veneer. And instead of relying on the supposedly benign impulses of corporate and state managers, uh, the left needs to champion mobilizations from below to shift the balance of forces in labor's favor and decouple social and ecological priorities from the reproduction of neoliberalism and globalization when what stakeholder capitalism is, is trying to do is precisely tie all solutions to the climate crisis, all solutions to the, the social crisis to the reproduction of neoliberalism so that we can't think beyond that. And I, I mean, just to round off of what I say at the end of my essay is that uh, the real alternative to shareholder capitalism isn't stakeholder capitalism. It's a socialist society where purpose, social purpose, ecological purpose is no longer constrained and sorted by profit. So, I mean, in my mind, where distribution is organized directly according to social and economic need, uh, social and ecological needs, sorry, out all the kind of distorted priorities that are introduced by capital's profit-oriented and market-mediated logic. So I, I, I mean, unless we're absolutely on this, clear on this point, that capitalism is the problem, then, uh, then I really think it's going to be the right wing that benefits uh, if, if the left fails to challenge neoliberalism. Kyle, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so yet. And also remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. 
Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon.